Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, hey, TCC, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And as you're turning there, let me just say that I feel like I've been away for months. I really haven't, but that's how it feels. I took some time to go shoot a film, and I want to thank you for the opportunity for that and the support that you gave and the encouragement that you gave for that endeavor. It's very unusual what we're doing. It's odd. It's different. But I firmly believe that God's favor is over it, and he's going to do amazing things. But it is good to be here and to be back in the rhythm of things, and it's my joy to speak to you from God's word today. So hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. You know, oftentimes in the church, I think we do things without actually analyzing it or self-reflecting on why, just because it's tradition. It's just what we do. If you've been here for more than a few years, then you know this is Palm Sunday, and so you can expect that we're going to have some pageantry. We're going to give palm branches to the kids, we're going to force them up front, and have them wave the branches in front of us. And why do we do that? Because it's cute? Because it makes for a good photo on Instagram? And maybe you're in a place this morning or today where that kind of cutesy pageantry is going to rub you the wrong way. And because you're dealing with serious issues, serious things. And we're all very much mindful of the devastating effects of the flooding and people in our body who are facing real risk and ruin. And that we sort of prayed for it is really the twisted part. You know, prayed for rain, prayed for rain, and then, well, you got it. And it feels like a cruel joke. Or our minds might drift to the shooting in Tennessee where Christian children were gunned down because they were Christian. Or we look at the various health issues that people are facing. And so maybe uh, viewing this today, uh, you're not really looking for a pageant. You want serious talk, serious theology for serious men. And frankly, maybe this entire passage that centers on praise, the deserved praise of God, 
isn't where your heart or mind are right now. And maybe the words that we've been singing are a little hard to stomach. But that's really all the more reason for it. And I hope before we reach the end here that we reaffirm in our own hearts that Jesus deserves all of our praise and adoration, rightfully deserves our praise, including the praise of our children. Now, since I raised the question of why do we do this silly little pageantry, that's probably a good place to start. We have grounding for it in our passage, right? Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Now, I think that Jesus is sort of sidestepping the issue here. I don't think that the problem the teachers of the law had were that children were offering praise. The problem for them was who the children were offering praise to. In their mind, the children are being led astray. And leading children astray is horrendous. We see so many ways in our culture in which helpless children are being corrupted and led astray. And it's heartbreaking. It's infuriating. And it's worth being indignant over. And so you can understand where the teachers of the law are coming from here. You know, we have a tendency to make them into cartoons and unsympathetic villains. But we really shouldn't because we can be just like them. And the fundamental issue here, the fundamental question here, is still the central question for all of humanity. It's right here in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Is he just a man? If he's just a good moral teacher, then the teachers of the law are right in their indignation. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the Son of God, equal to the Father, if he is God incarnate, then all of the praise and adoration is rightfully due him. And everything that is transpiring here is not against Scripture, but is the fulfillment of Scripture and is perfectly in alignment with Scripture as Jesus indicates. These children are shouting and praising his arrival, and Jesus says that's right. That's good. And so that's why we have the children come forward and wave palm fronds. Actually, I think it's more than that. We're not just replicating some aspect of the triumphal entry. I think there's a deeper sense here in which we are reminded of something about God. What does it mean that God brings forth praise from the lips of children and infants? What does that tell us about our God? What comes to mind when we think of children? Preciousness? Innocence, tenderness, there's elements of that, but there's also smallness, insignificance. Very famously, we see this exchange in scripture. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. His disciples rebuked them. Jesus is an important man. He's got important things to do. Serious ministry, serious theology. We don't have time for this. It's frivolous and unserious. But Jesus condescends. He stoops low. And he seeks and he delights in praise. Even when there's no prestige. That is so not us. You know, I've written a couple of uh, children's books. And what would I rather receive? A glowing review in the New York Times or some random kid telling me he liked it. Hard to say. 
Now think of the humility of our God that he deigns to receive, let alone delights in such praise. That almighty God, the God of the universe, omnipotent, awesome, and powerful, majestic, and glorious, can receive praise and glory from kids waving palm fronds on a Sunday morning. It's silly. It's frivolous and entirely unserious. And yet our God, who is so great in humility, can delight in it can seek it and say, yes, that's good, that's right. But the thing is, it's not just our children. You know, it's all of our praise. And we can fool ourselves with our skill and our ability and our proficiency and think that we have some real prestige to offer. In fact, often I think that we can view God's desire for our praise as an act of hubris, a pride on God's part, of insecurity on his part even. When in reality, it's an expression of unbelievable humility. God is and always was perfectly sufficient. He doesn't need our praise. His praise and glory is not dependent on us. In Luke's gospel with the triumphal entry, we see this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. God can bring the praise he is due from inanimate objects. And Jesus says these words, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began, God was not lacking in glory. The Father glorified the Son. The Son glorified the Spirit. The Spirit glorified the Father. Praise, glory, adoration, self-sufficiently within the Trinity before the world began. But then God creates the world, and all of it brings him glory, and then he stoops down low and from dust forms man for his praise and glory. From the dust. He knows what we're made from, and we have no prestige to offer him. And what sets us apart from the rest of creation, what gives us value and worth and dignity, is just him. It's the image of God. It's his image that he bestows on us that gives us intrinsic worth. And so all of our praise here, all of our worship, all of our skill and ability is just a reflection of him and a warped reflection at that, an imperfect reflection in our unglorified selves. And yet rather than be disappointed, our God relishes our worship. He seeks our praise and even delights in it when our hearts are truly and rightfully praising him. What profound humility. You know, even at this high watermark of Jesus' ministry, a triumphal entry or shouts of praise and adoration, people throwing their cloaks down before him, at least in human terms, this is the most honor that Jesus ever receives in his ministry. And yet, it's still profoundly humble. A king coming, but riding on a donkey. Gentle, condescending, in humility, but also with truth. Now, let's not forget that. Notice that. That's important to see. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Don't mistake his humility for weakness. He comes in gentleness, but he is a judge, and he will not forsake the truth. He is humble, but he will not yield his glory to another. 
He comes in gentleness, but he will not blaspheme himself. He will not tell you you're fine the way you are when you're not. He will not tell you there's more than one way to heaven when there's not. He will not say there's something more worthy of your love or your time or your praise or your worship than him because that's not true. He comes in humility. He comes in gentleness, but he comes in truth. He loves you too much to lie to you. And the depths of that love is precisely what is on display in this holiest of weeks. The most remarkable thing of Christianity is that not only does God condescend, not only does he stoop to receive our praise, but he goes even lower. He doesn't just stoop to receive our praise. He stoops to receive our scorn. You know, hear these words from Philippians. This is the lens through which I want us to see this passage. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's God, with all of the glory and all of the honor that is due, but he humbles himself in the incarnation, and he humbles himself further as a suffering servant. And that is what we see. A triumphal entry will lead to the road of suffering. He comes into the city with shouts of Hosanna in the highest. He goes out of the city with shouts of crucify him. He comes into the city with glory and the praise that is due, but he'll go out in shame and disgrace. He enters into the city with adoration. He goes out of it in mockery. He comes into this city as a king. He goes out of it as a criminal. He enters into the city and they throw cloaks before him. He goes out of it and they strip him naked. He lowers himself to that. He stoops not just to receive our praise, but even our scorn. He stoops to receive not just what he deserves, but even what he doesn't. He makes himself nothing to give us everything. Oh, the least we can give them is our praise. It says in Romans, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In his love, he humbles himself, even to death on a cross. He takes upon himself our sin, he takes upon himself our shame, and spares us from the rightful judgment that we are due. And back to Romans. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You know, theodicy is often cited as this huge theological problem, right? That an omnipotent and perfectly good God permits so much evil is often seen as this really big intellectual problem. I really don't think it is. Not if we actually accept the premise of Christianity, which is that you are a sinner deserving of hell. Whether you like that or not, and many people don't, that is the claim. Jesus is saving us from hell. That's why he's our savior. So just for the sake of argument, let's accept the premise. You and I are sinners deserving of hell. If that's actually true, then all of the suffering that you or I might experience in this world, and it might be a lot, is still not worse than hell. And that's what we 
deserve. That's not a big problem of logic. Suffering isn't really that hard to understand. It's just hard to stomach. And the reality is actually that we are so lavished by the grace of God, so filled so often by his kindness and his goodness and his compassion and so steeped in his grace that we come to believe that we're owed it. God has been so gracious to me year in and year out, day in and day out, that I come to expect it. I do. I expect security. I expect shelter. I expect wealth. I expect food. I expect good health. I expect my kids to outlive me. And if all of that is stripped from me, I could argue the point. I could say God gives and God takes away. I could intellectualize it. But I don't know how I would stomach it. That's a different problem. And so how do we? We look to the cross. The cross is not just the answer to an intellectual problem. It's not even just the answer to sin or the means of salvation, as monumental as that is. But it's also the means by which we see and experience the depths of God's love for us, which is our comfort in a world of sorrows. Right back to the passage in Romans, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It says in Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we not grow weary? How do we not lose heart? We look to the cross. We look to the man of sorrows, to the one who comes in to shouts of praise and goes out to cries of crucify him, who comes in as a king and goes out a criminal, who comes in honor and goes out in disgrace, who empties himself, becomes nothing to give us everything because he loves us. And his love will see us through. God keeps his promises. We see that in our passage. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy is fulfilled. God keeps his promises. And that is not a small thing. Because as comforting as it is to know and feel and experience the love of God, we need to know and be assured that his loving intentions won't fail. He will do what he promised. He will bring about what he swore to us. And what we're promised is that it all turns to glory, that our light and momentary troubles are achieving an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, that our mourning will turn to rejoicing, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. And that too we see at the cross. The sermon series is called Standard Issue, and Jesus is our standard bearer. Let's look back to that Philippians passage, the lens through which we're viewing this. See how it starts, but then see how it ends. 
in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He comes in with shouts of Hosanna in the highest. He goes out with shouts of crucify him. But one day every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He goes in a king. He goes out a criminal. But every knee will bow before him. He goes in with praise and adoration. He goes out in scorn and shame. But he is raised in glory and exalted to the highest place. That is our standard bearer. And if we die with Christ, we will rise with him. If we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his glory. He gives us everything. The least we can give him is our praise. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.